There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. For the best experience, listen with headphones. The interesting thing was that they had seen a ball of light rolling across the lawns. It had rolled up a wall and burst into flame. And Clifford McChenna, who was one of the more responsible workers, had run to ring a bell, which was kept there for an emergency. While he was ringing the bell, this ball of flame gathered together, climbed down the wall, or they used the expression walked down the wall, went past behind him and burst into flame again in another place. When this happened, he was aware of three figures standing there. The three figures turned around in unison, but slowly. And when they faced him, he saw this brilliant light emanating from the heads. And it was like a power, because he fell to the ground. And I said, but they were three meters away from you, about 10 feet. How come you fell to the ground? And he said their power was so strong. Now, when he described them to me, he said they had shiny suits. And you might remember that I told you there's no word in Shona, Mashona, which is their language, for the word silver. So when I wanted him to be more explicit, he took a coin out of his pocket, silver coin, and he said that was what they were wearing. And then I said, Clifford, who did you think they were? And he said, I knew who they were. They were my ancestors the ghosts of my ancestors. And I said, but your ancestors wore fur and uh, monkey skins and lion's teeth. They didn't wear silver suits. And he thought for a bit and then he said, well, times change. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Toby Ball and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 2, Excited and Scared at the Same Time. 
In episode one, we took a look at a UFO encounter in Papua New Guinea. Aside from the details of the event, what stood out to me was the matter-of-fact attitude taken by Father William Gill, one of the witnesses and the main chronicler. He reported what he saw, expressed his sense of wonder, conceded that he might be mistaken in thinking it was something alien, and understood if people didn't believe him. But what happens when people with specific beliefs about UFOs become involved in the reporting of an encounter? In the next two episodes, we'll take a look at an event similar to the one in Papua New Guinea. But in this case, the investigations undertaken by UFO researchers and journalists may have changed the narrative to a degree that it is now hard to discern what actually happened on the day of the sighting, a sighting that took place at a dusty schoolyard in Zimbabwe. The summer of 1988 saw the first edition of a newsletter, or maybe it was a zine, titled UFO Afro-News, published out of Harare, Zimbabwe, in southern Africa. The cover had the title and date of publication in a no-frills font. In the middle of the page was a fairly rough outline sketch of the African continent, flanked on the right by a drawing of a classic flying saucer, with a single antenna and either five windows or five heads looking out of a window running the length of the craft. To the left of the continental outline was a drawing of what I think is an antelope. Anyway, the cover is very basic and sets the tone for the rest of the presentation, which is by today's standards almost comically bare bones. But the content of the UFO Afternoons is another story. It is a testament to the efforts of a woman named Cynthia Hind, along with a small group of correspondents, to document UFO encounters in Africa. The very first paragraph of the first article, headlined Comment, reads like this. Like most investigators over a long period, 20 years, my terms of reference have changed subtly. Where isolation, disrespect, and ridicule were at one time paramount, I have recently begun to notice a change, a grudging acceptance of the possibility of life out there. Even from the most conservative members of society, a laid-back support, however hopeless in current terms, of what ufologists are doing. Over the next 12 years, UFO Afro-News published 22 editions, featuring stories with headlines such as UFO crash on Botswana-South African border, bus in the sky, and UFO in the fields of Afrom Plains. But the biggest story covered by UFO Afro-News ran in its 11th edition, released in February of 1995. Spanning several articles, it began with a report on an object that was seen across southern Africa, traversing the night sky the evening of Wednesday, September 14th. 1994. According to Hind, the first reports came from Johannesburg, South Africa, where people called into a local radio show to report seeing lights in the sky. Over the next 10 to 12 minutes, the lights were seen by people in South Africa, Botswana, southern Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Hind wrote, The general consensus of opinion was that the lights were preceded by a ball of fire which seemed to have a point to it, with a long tail of sparks. It was white or goldish color and lit up brilliantly in the sky. Some people saw three huge lights at the front with smaller lights varying from 8 to 20. 
Many reported that the objects were traveling very fast from north to south, others that it moved slowly. Her article went on to relate in detail the reports of a number of individuals about what they had witnessed that night. She concluded that there were three possibilities for what was seen. A plane flying the Johannesburg to Bulawayo to Harare route that was running late, putting it in the right place and time to be the object. An unknown craft not of this earth. Or, anticipating what is now considered the fact of the matter, a Russian satellite that had been launched on the 26th or 27th of August had jettisoned its nose cone on September 14th. The nose cone had broken up as it entered the atmosphere over southern Africa. She mentioned pieces of the cone being retrieved northwest of Harare and from a river in Mozambique. It was in this atmosphere of concern about the lights in the sky above southern Africa that the events behind the most consequential revelations of this edition of UFO Afrinews occurred. On Friday, September 16th, 36 hours after the lights in the sky, 62 children at the aerial school in Rua, Zimbabwe, had an encounter with an object and non-human beings in the fields beyond their schoolyard. The aerial school is a private elementary school in the town of Rua, which is about 12 miles east of the capital city of Harare. In 1994, the school was racially diverse, and its more than 200 students were pulled largely from middle-class and upper-class families. They came from as far away as Harare, reportedly about a 30-minute drive. The boys at the school wore uniforms of khaki shorts and matching button-up safari shirts. The girls wore square-collared dresses of light blue with white piping on the collars and sleeves. At 10.15 that warm spring morning, they were outside at recess. No adults were present. There was a staff meeting inside. Older students had been left in charge. In all, there were about 250 students outside. Of those, 62 would report seeing a craft and some number of beings. The basics of the encounter were fairly straightforward. What complicates matters was that all of the witnesses were children who were interviewed again and again and whose stories could not help but evolve. That's not a criticism of the children. In fact, because adult interviewers generally did not exercise proper precautions in interviewing the children, it is almost inevitable that the children's perceptions would change. With that in mind, let's take a look at the basic story that comes out of the encounter before examining how the students were questioned in the days, weeks, and months that followed. I'm not going to spend time on a few issues tangential to the main story, such as whether a small number of students saw lights in the sky either that morning or the day before. At the time of this recording, Charlie Weiser's excellent and comprehensive website, $3 Kit, is a great source for a detailed look at all of the issues in this encounter. With all that being said, there are essentially two elements to the encounter. The sighting of the craft at a distance beyond the playground among some trees, and then the appearance of some figures around the craft. It began with some children noticing an object glinting in the sun, maybe 100 meters past the edge of their schoolyard. From the February 1995 edition of UFO Afrinews. Shortly after 10 o'clock, a few of the children noticed something strange. Beyond their playground, 
which was dotted with several clumps of trees, the rest being mostly cleared ground. There was bush area. The ground there belonged to the school, and though attempts had been made to clear it and level it, it really was still rough land. Long grass with thorn and other indigenous bushes. Trees growing in higgledy-piggledy fashion, and undergrowth thick and heavy enough to hide a child should they venture there. Besides which, no one knew what dangerous small animals such as snakes, jackals, unidentified spiders, scorpions, etc. might be lurking in the grass. The following are clips of aerial students taken from interviews conducted by Zimbabwean radio and television personality Jill Dark in the weeks following the encounter. Here they describe seeing the craft. We start with a student named Candace. Me and my friend Claire, Haley, and Camilla, we were just walking and then we saw this maroon color just waving about and it was disappearing and disappearing and we started to follow it. And then we stood over there on one of the logs and we saw like this silver thing and we decided that we should go down there and see. But Claire said we're not allowed there. So I said, I don't, it doesn't matter, let's just go and see. And we got closer and closer and we saw this silver thing just shining it. And we thought that it was just a house with glass and reflecting in the sun and shining. Then we thought, no, it can't be that because there's no houses up there on the rocks. And then we waited for a few minutes and we just stared at it and we heard this flute, sort of like a flute noise. This is Munyaradzi. He mentions a tuck shop, which is more or less a snack shop at the school. Well, I was at the tech shop um, over there, and then I saw people crowding up at the near the site. So I went there and I looked, and I saw this this ship, and it had this light like a pattern, um, yellow, purple, and green. This is another aerial student named Guy. So I went down to see what was happening, and I actually saw this craft in the trees. And it was like in a Milky Way pattern, like silver and green and that sort of colors. And then there was this little boy crying. So I went up to him to see what was wrong with him. And he said he was quite afraid of it. And then that actually made me quite afraid of it because when somebody's afraid, I get afraid. Interviews conducted by Tim Leach of the BBC and Cynthia Hind on the Monday and Tuesday after the sighting. So a few weeks before the clips we just heard provide additional information. Guy, who we heard from earlier, described the craft as, quote, roundabout, like a disc. A student named Nathan said, quote, it had a round top and it was flat like that around the sides. Charity described it as, quote, like a saucer, but the shape wasn't really round. The students also saw figures by the craft. As we will see later, there was some inconsistency in their descriptions of these figures. Here's Munyaradzi again. There was something running across in some of the ship that moved. Then uh, when I looked more down, when I looked like straight, a straight figure with the glass, to some like alien thing. He had big eyes, like what Guy was saying here. Guy. I saw this person and he, his eyes were like in a slant, like say like so. 
and his life was just like a line, like this. And then at the, at the time, the teachers were in a staff meeting. So nobody actually went up to go and call the teachers because I think they were too afraid and everything. This is Candace. I saw this black figure running in slow motion and then I didn't want to see it, so I looked away and I looked again and it wasn't there anymore. Candace's friend, Claire. This figure, like Candace said, running in slow motion and one poked its head out uh, and looked at me out of the grass and me and Candace were really scared. We nearly screamed. We were so scared and we were running back and forth because we were excited and scared at the same time. In their interviews with the students, Tim Leach and Cynthia Hine also elicited descriptions of the figures around the craft. Some examples. Oriana said, quote, I don't know what it was, but it was very thin. All I saw was a long thing on a silver thing. Kaylee saw three figures, stating, We saw some people, a white one, a red one, a black one. The black one was sitting on the spaceship. Luke recalled that the figure he saw seemed to have long hair. Quote, I didn't see the spaceship, but I saw the little black guy. He was all black, and it looked like he had long hair. Daniel said, quote, It almost looked like a real person, except it was fairly plump. He continued, His hair was, it looked more like our hair. It wasn't curly. That thing almost looked like a hippie. Big eyes, slanted eyes, very thin, fairly plump, long hair, red, white, black, almost like a hippie. The descriptions aren't consistent and are occasionally contradictory. And more detail was to come when they were asked to draw pictures of what they had seen. But we'll get to that in a minute. BBC correspondent Tim Leach heard about the encounter on Friday, the day it occurred. He called Cynthia Hind, a friend of his, to tell her about the event. Hind began her investigation that weekend. She called Allison Kirkman, who was volunteering at the tuck shop when the sighting occurred, as well as three student witnesses. It's not clear which three students those were. The most interesting thing about the aerial school encounter is that there is this kind of unfortunate weekend, like it happened on a Friday. There was a weekend where possible contamination of testimony could occur. Like the kids apparently broke up from school at one o'clock on the Friday afternoon, and then people were talking about it for presumably the rest of that day. This is researcher and writer Gideon Reed. And then, as I understand it, Cynthia Allen spoke to some people by telephone that weekend. Now, if those telephone conversations have been recorded and can be published, that would be fascinating because that would kind of go a long way toward countering any arguments that the testimonies were hopelessly corrupted. What Gideon is talking about here is that Hind, through her four conversations, could have affected the way that people, particularly the students, understood what they had seen. We'll see how this can work in a minute. School went back into session on Monday morning. The headmaster, Colin Mackey, asked each of the students who had seen the craft and the figures to draw a picture of what they had seen. 
There was a wide range in the students' artistic ability, owing largely to the difference in their ages. While the drawings are not all consistent, there are some basic details that the majority of the drawings hint at. A craft, more or less like what you would think of when you think of a flying saucer, short and wide, either a disc or a rectangular shape, often with windows or lights. A number of the drawings have the craft situated within a group of trees. Many of the drawings depicted a being or beings, some looking like the classic alien with the big angled eyes and the barely there nose and mouth, and critically, bald heads. Others showed a figure with long straight hair, as we heard described earlier. Over the next two days, Tim Leach and Cynthia Hind, along with a BBC camera crew, and Hind's assistant and cameraman, Gunter Hofer, visited Ariel School. Mackie, the headmaster, found himself in a difficult situation. His school was suddenly thrust into the spotlight, with both an international news organization and the most prominent UFO researcher in Southern Africa converging on Rua. His thoughts on what happened in the schoolyard were complicated. Um, I feel sure that the children feel that they did see something. I don't believe or disbelieve, to be perfectly honest, but I do feel that they definitely saw something. We had a number of children say they did. We asked them to draw pictures of what they saw this morning, what they saw on Friday, and after looking at those, I definitely feel that they did see something. I agree that it could be something that we um, are not common with, but to actually say that it was a UFO, I would be uh, reluctant to make a decision like that. I personally did not see it. No adult had. Leach came to the school and conducted his interviews for the BBC on Monday. On Tuesday, Cynthia Hind arrived with Gunter Hofer. Hind reviewed the children's drawings and then began to question the children. And here we begin to see the problem that plagues accounts of this event. After the break. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Cynthia Hind, the most prominent UFO researcher in Southern Africa, arrived at the aerial school on the Tuesday following the Friday encounter. During the intervening weekend, she had talked to an adult who hadn't seen anything, but had been the nearest adult to the students who did, as well as three students who were witnesses. She came to Ariel School to gather more information from the other students who had seen the craft and its occupants. Questioning witnesses is a difficult endeavor. A good questioner wants to obtain the subject's information, not influence it. And this requires training and skill. Questioning children is even more difficult because they are more susceptible to influence, whether intentional or not. On his blog, Skeptic vs. the Flying Saucers, Gilles Fernandez, a writer and lecturer with a PhD in cognitive psychology, identifies two critical mistakes that Hine makes while interviewing the students. First, she not only interviews the children in a group, but other children form an audience to watch the interviews. This allows for students to influence each other's accounts. We heard an example of this dynamic earlier when, in an interview with Jill Dark, Munyaradzi said, He had big eyes, like one guy was saying here. He says, He had big eyes, like one guy was saying here. He's referencing the account that he's just seen his classmate Guy give and confirming its accuracy. Here's another example, again with Jill Dark. I saw this black figure running in slow motion and then I didn't want to see it, so I looked away and I looked again and it wasn't there anymore. This figure, like Candace said, running in slow motion and one poked its head up and looked at me out of the grass. Here, Candace and her friend Claire are telling the story together they can't help but influence each other's accounts. Second, Hind doesn't allow the children to freely tell their story. Fernandez explains that interviewers should not interject or ask specific questions. Children should be allowed to tell their story without prompting, unless rephrasing what they had just said is necessary to get them back to talking. Fernandez writes of a generic interviewer, quote, he absolutely must not interrupt him nor ask him specific and precise questions. On that Tuesday, Hind began by interviewing a group of children together, with the headmaster and other children watching. They brought in the oldest children. Randall Nickerson, creator of the documentary The Aerial Phenomenon. All those children in that first interview she brings in, or actually the headmaster did, was to bring in all the older kids who were much more responsible and were more experienced. And that's what you see there. Addressing the same point, Gideon Reed references film Taken and posted by Heinz assistant, Gunter Hofer. So the video that you see on Gunter Hofer's YouTube channel, Cynthia Hein interviewing the children, she's kind of going along the line of children in the room and there's like a crowd of children in the doorway. I think that was filmed on the Tuesday, and Tim Leach from the BBC was there on the Monday. So by the Tuesday, the children have already probably been asked the same question a whole bunch of times. There's just so much unknown about that whole period. This section of the transcript of Hines' interview with Candace, read by actors, shows that far from allowing the student to tell her story, 
Hind guides the telling. While she doesn't seem to intentionally elicit certain answers, the questions that she asks indicate what she thinks is important about the story. She also asks either-or questions that limit possible answers. Would you say it was like an ordinary suit? Was it like what Mr. Mackey's wearing? No. Or what would you call the type of clothing? I'm not sure, but he was really... Have you ever seen the divers going in the sea? Oh yes, like that. Was it like that, or was it like an overall, or a tight-fitting suit? It was tight-fitting. It was tight-fitting? Yes. And it was shiny? Yes. Could you see his face? Well, I only saw a glimpse of it. And you don't remember any individual features? I only remember that his eyes were quite big. Eyes were big. And were you afraid? I was a little afraid. Here, Hind has introduced the idea that the students might be afraid. Candace can answer either in the affirmative or negative, and actually kind of splits the difference by saying she was a little afraid. What do you think it was? I don't know. I just thought it was some kind of alien from a different planet. She asks for Candace's opinion, moving the conversation away from the student's experience and to conjecture, and given who Hind was, the answer that she is looking for is probably clear to Candace. So you knew about UFOs? Yes. You've watched on television? Yes. You think that influenced you? Or you weren't thinking about that when you... I wasn't thinking about it. And then, talking in front of a group of students and Headmaster Mackey, Hines speculates that although people may have seen the breakup of a Russian rocket on August 27th, it doesn't explain the figures they saw. She continues, We don't know what it is, and it could be just some... There was a Russian satellite breakup on the 27th of August, and it's a possibility something came down, but it would not account for the figure you saw. And I think it's time the world woke up that something's going on, and they don't all think I'm a kooky character, a weird lady as they call me. In this one extraordinary statement, Hind seems to confirm to the students that they have seen something of great importance. Quote, it's time the world woke up that something's going on, end quote. And given the students the power to rehabilitate her image as, in her words, a kooky character. Over the next month and a half, the students at Ariel School were interviewed by a Zimbabwean television and radio personality named Jill Dark and by Nicole Carter of the South African Broadcasting Corporation. On November 24th, the South African television show Agenda ran a piece on the sighting which included mention of Harvard psychology professor and UFO researcher John Mack, who was due to arrive in Africa. In the February 1995 edition of UFO Afro News, Hind expressed the excitement in having Mack visit Zimbabwe. Here, then, is a man who is not only open-minded and prepared to listen, but an academic of some standing, and one who has risked his credibility with his colleagues to come out and say he believes the experiences of abductees are very real indeed. When he arrived... It was a red-letter day for Zimbabwe. 
New York Times reporter and John Mack biographer Ralph Blumenthal. John Mack went there to Zimbabwe, recorded the interviews on camera, questioned the children. He was very good with children, by the way, because child psychology was always one of his fields of interest. And he knew how to to talk to kids in a non-threatening way to get them to open up to him. So he got them really to tell what they had seen. Mack interviewed the aerial students on December 2nd and 3rd, 1994, two and a half months after the sighting. If you've heard of the aerial sighting before this podcast, you've probably heard about the messages that the students said they had received through some kind of telepathy from the alien figures. Messages about how the Earth's environment was in peril. We'll take a closer look at Mac's career as a UFO investigator in upcoming episodes. But for now, it is important to understand that Mac was an ardent environmentalist and anti-nuclear activist and perceived that the purported alien abductees that he worked with were given messages from their abductors about the need to protect the planet. Here is Mac in an interview with philosopher Terence McKenna at the International Transpersonal Conference in Prague in June 1992, two years before the aerial school encounter. The clip begins with McKenna asking a question, and then Mac answers. Then do you think of it as an ecological danger signal, that it's a message from an Earth intelligence, perhaps the Earth intelligence? There are two pieces of evidence that suggest that that's true. One is that the abductees themselves on the ships receive intense messages about ecological destruction, annihilation of whole forest systems, pollution of the water system, visions of the planet dying and they see that on television like screens they get it through telepathic communication and these are not environmentalists these people they are people who are very simple ordinary people unremarkable except that they are getting this extraordinary information and they actually become intensely passionately concerned about the earth and what's happening to the Earth and their children do, because their children may be abducted as well. So, given his thoughts about the message that aliens are trying to impart, it's striking that when Mac arrives, some of the children he interviews mention the alien figure's concern with the environment. Researcher and writer Gideon Reed. You know, there was no mention of anyone receiving telepathic communication until... John Mack interviewed the children 77 days later, which is a huge amount of time for something so distinct and so mind-changing. For someone to have received telepathic communication and for it to not be heard about until they're sat in an interview two and a half months later, and then the things that they say that they had received in those interviews just happened to be perfectly in line with the concerns and interests of the academic that they're talking to. On the website $3 Kit, Charlie Weiser lays out transcripts of interviews of the aerial student witnesses chronologically. Prior to Mac's appearance, the environmentalist message coming from the alien figures was not mentioned. Mac interviewed 12 children on film, but most of the films and transcripts are embargoed by the John Mack Institute until sometime in 2023. But what is available of his interviews includes student Emma Kay stating during a conversation about why she was afraid of the strange visitors, 
I think they want people to know that we're actually making harm on this world and we mustn't get too technologed. When asked by Mac what he, quote, imagines is the alien's, quote, reason for visiting Earth, a student named Francis replies, quote, I think it's about something that's going to happen. Mac asks him, like what? Francis says, pollution or something. In this case, Francis doesn't state that this is a message he received from the aliens. Instead, he responded to Mac asking him what he, quote, imagines. His answers flowed from that request to imagine, not his relating what actually happened. It's worth taking a slightly closer look at another interview, this time with a student named Liesel. The important part for our purposes comes after an edit in the film, so it's not clear what question Mac asks. But Liesel's response is, What I thought was maybe the world's going to end. Maybe they're telling us the world's going to end. Why do you think they might want us to be scared? Because um, we, maybe because we never we don't look after the planet and the area properly. Mm-hmm. And really, this is—is is this an idea that you have had before that we don't look after the planet properly in the air, or did this idea come to you when you had this experience? When I had this experience. Mm-hmm. And how did that idea come to you from this? This is a little hard, but try try to be with me here, okay? When you, how did this idea come to you when you had this experience? I just felt all horrible inside. You felt horrible. At what point did you feel that? When you saw the craft, or at, when you got home at night? Or when I got home. You had that horrible feeling when you got home. Yes. And say more about that horrible feeling, Lisa. What was it like? It was like in the world, all the trees will just go down and and there will be no air and people will be dying. Mm-hmm. And those thoughts came to you. Had you had those thoughts before this experience? No. No. And did, how did those thoughts come to you? Did they come to you from the craft or from from the man the man and the man did the man say those things to you uh, how did he get that across to you well he never said anything it's just that the face is the eyes what, what was the sense you got from those eyes he was interested Now, there's no indication that Mac talked to the children about his environmental concerns. But it is strange that this was not part of the aerial story until he arrived to interview the child witnesses. And this became part of the narrative from there on out. This is a clip of two boys talking with Tinika Denui on the Dutch television show Tinika and the Paranormale Welt, 15 months after Mac's interviews and a year and a half after the sighting. Some people say that um, people are saying that the aliens came to warn us when something's going to happen, that something bad is going to happen to the Earth. Yeah. I think they came here to um, try and warn us that the children, because we're, we're young, got a long time. we've got a long time till we die, um, to warn us that in 
when we're older, there's, there's something going to happen to the earth. Yeah, not to pollute. Because yeah. we're young, we can still prevent it. Yeah. So by the time that Tinika Danui visits Ariel School, the students have settled on a narrative that is driven by what they saw that Friday morning on the playground, but has been inevitably corrupted by poor investigatory practices and possibly by the personal beliefs of a premier UFO investigator. But even if the details of their stories may not be 100% reliable, it seems as though they saw something. And if it wasn't a landed spacecraft, what could it be? Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Rima El Kayali, Jesse Funk, and Noemi Griffin, with executive producers Alexander Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey, and supervising producer Josh Thane, with voice acting by Teresa Backer, Juliana Thompson, and Alexander Williams. And special thanks to Kay Adams of archive.org. Learn more about the show at grimandmild.com slash strangearrivals. And find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.